I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to this. It is the Rugby Dungeon. Thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing. You're listening to the podcast, which is all about, well, I guess interviews and stuff like that. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter, at jbeardmore. You can even find out what I do for a day job if you go to uh, the Beardmore & Co. Independent Financial Advice website. That's actually what I do. And uh, thank you to uh, thank you to them for letting me have the afternoon off to do these interviews. Uh, and, of course, you can follow the podcast uh, Twitters too. This is at the Rugby Dungeon and also Egg Chasers, which is at Rugby Podcast. Now, you'll probably know about Egg Chasers because this will be on your Egg Chasers feed, but there is also a unique Rugby Dungeon feed too. So if you just want one of the two podcasts, you can have whichever feed that you feel like. Completely up to you. The main thing is that you're listening. And you should listen because today we have Rob Baxter. Uh, I'd give you a bit of a brief introduction to Rob, but there's no point really because if you're listening to this, you almost certainly know all about him. So here he is. Rob, how are you? Uh, I'm very good, thank you. Um, j- just about starting to uh, obviously get back into work mode. We're back in pre-season a, a week today after uh, our after our two and a half weeks off. And, uh, well, yeah, well, uh, and the two and a half weeks before that, you made winning trophies look a little bit easy. Uh, how does it all feel? Well, the one thing, if anybody was watching the game, was I don't think any anybody would say they were two games that were one easy, were they? No, they were. Um, I mean, they were tough games against good opponents who fought all the way. You know, I was particularly, I thought Wasp in particular really stood up and, and you know, with the challenges they had had that season and in that week, really stood up and fought very well. And I thought ourselves, with the challenges we'd obviously had that week, um, with a very tough game mm. the preceding two, three weeks, tough game, you know, running really tough games. Obviously, the emotion of winning the Heining Cup for the first time. Then, obviously, we, we hear we can't prepare for anybody because we don't know what's who our opponents are actually going to be. Until until midweek, so we had, we had some challenges ourselves, and yet we toughed it out as well. A week after, in very very difficult conditions, um, certainly wasn't conditions that anybody who's played in Premiership finals previously would have played in. Yeah, you, know, you don't play in monsoons and strong winds and pretty cold temperatures in a Premiership final normally. Uh, so we dealt with that very well. And you, you, you know, this is where you got to you got to hand great credit to players when they come through those scenarios because actually. I think as a coaching group, you try, you try and create a group who've got the resilience 
to potentially get through that run of games because mm. no one let, no one will ever have to play in a run of games like that again where you go uh was it Highland Cup you know uh, Highland Cup semi-final premiership sem- uh, semi-final Highland Cup final premiership sem- you know, final in a, in a run of games like no one will ever have to do that again and as a coaching group I think you try and build a, a group that's got that ability but then when it comes to it it doesn't make I don't care what anybody says, you know, the, the week after the, the first couple of days after winning the Highland Cup, I said to the lads, look, I'm not going to stand here and tell you you've got to get out there and fight and you've got to work hard. I said, I've just seen you batter yourself around <laughs> to win a Highland Cup final. I said, for me to stand here on a Monday and go, right, come on, what's wrong with you lot? Get on with it, toughen up. If you want to win a premiership, it just sounds ridiculous. Mm. I said, but, I said, if you guys want to win it, you understand, you're going to have to understand you're going to have to get through an amount of training this week. They'll give you a chance to, to do it. And to be fair, they did it. Early in the week, I was a little concerned about, about where we were, whether emotionally we had enough left in the tank. But by the oh. end of the week, I thought the lads had really locked down exceptionally well as to what they'd have to commit. And thank goodness they did, because what's the river than that is? And we had to be very physically committed in that final to stand any chance. And as it was, that was probably the element of the game that, that saw us home was our a kind of physical physicality around the forwards and in in, in defence. So one thing you said then, which I found really interesting, I don't know if you if you even if you even noticed it, but you said that you had a little bit of a problem because midweek you didn't know who you were preparing for. Was it Wasps? Was it Bristol? Um, because obviously Bristol would have stepped in. Could Wasps not have made it? Um, that implies to me that you have a. a a very specific process that you go through go go through in preparation for a game um how does that pan out over the course of a week then yeah we do we have in some ways it's a strength and a weakness because to be fair where where what's been nice this season it's happened a couple of times obviously happened in the run into the premiership semi-final as well in the run to the premiership semi-final we could have we could have played one of three teams. Yeah. So by the time we got to the Premiership final, it was actually quite a relief that it was only one of two, because you know, in the <laughs> yes, semi final we actually had to do we had to do some amount of prep around three play, three teams. Um, we have we have a relatively detailed process based around Mondays is very much review. Yeah. So we try and get the, the weekend's game reviewed and out of the way, but um, that and so that's the that will be the focus of the meetings, but actually after the players have done their individual reviews and the, the reviews, they then move on to, uh, on a Monday evening, starting to preview some key elements of the opposition, which, together with the coaches, then get pulled together on the Tuesday, which is very opposition-focused. And then the Wednesday kind of shifts back a little bit, probably more towards us, yes, in a way, and, and how we're going to play in the weekend coming, having, having worked on, on the Tuesday work-ons from the Monday, obviously also focused on the bits that will be effective and we need to get right for the forthcoming opposition. And then on Wednesday, we very much locked down into the game plan we're going to impose and how we're going to play that weekend. So for you not to be able to do that until the Wednesday, you know, skipping that Tuesday, which is opposition prep-based, um, and trying to fit that all in on a Wednesday morning is a shift for us. But at the same time, it does mean you spend a Monday, Tuesday focusing on yourself and your individual development and where you can improve as a team and how you rebuild your energy and, and you start saying and doing and practicing the right things. So I'm not, I'm not saying they, you know, in, in hindsight, you say, well, were they negatives because we won the games? Yeah. Essentially not. Did, was it an alteration of process for us? It, it certainly was, yes. How interesting. So if I'm one of your players and I come in on a Tuesday morning, what will you have prepared for me 
to get me ready for that session? Well, depending a lot depends on positionally where you are. Yeah. So an element of it, an element of it is you might have looked at a fair bit of it yourself. So if you're a line out forward, mm. you will have had you have done a fair bit of that analysis yourself. And this is why I'm saying it's it, the, the shift is different because if I show you a fixture list, so you look at this is the proposed fixture list down the side here for where we start next season. Yes. Well, if you think if you're if you're a line out forward, it may be that if you don't play one week, you start doing some preparation work. For the, for the following week to present oh, to the yeah, forwards, so it doesn't even it doesn't even go that you'll start on a on a Monday for the next Saturday. You know, cause a fair bit of the prep around players who don't play the non twenty three may they may start focusing on elements of an opposition before then. As a coach, you 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 focus on elements of the opposition. For myself, I do most of my analysis on a team are playing over a week ahead because it's actually the end of the previous week where you have your most free time, don't you? Because yeah. If you think about it. You play a game on a Saturday, you spend all day Sunday reviewing the game. The last bit of it, you start to review the opposition's game from that weekend. They're one. But any other games that you review of the opposition, I tend to review at the tail end of the previous week. So by the time you get to a Thursday, which is our day off, that's the day I tend to spend the most time on the opposition for the following week. I'm with you. So a, a, so a lot of your prep actually happens even more than a week in advance because you've got a structured, a structured fixture list. That's... And when you... When you don't even know, you know, after a round of semi-finals, you know, you have that time cut even shorter. So, you know, it's 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 one of those challenges. But it's it's. I always I I think everyone said didn't they at the start of this restart that it was going to be the resilient teams and the teams that could adapt to change and and enjoy them that were going to be successful. That's and so- I think that's what that's what got proved, wasn't it? Because it got more it got more difficult to be uh, structured the longer the thing went on. Not less. Yeah, that's actually that adaption to midweek games, shorter prep, all of those things. The teams that adapted the most, the teams that eventually came through, and obviously Wasps had a great run through the post lockdown. So they obviously adapted really well to whatever they were doing around training and their focus at games and the midweek fixtures, etc. As we did, Um, and ultimately we were the teams that, that got to the final game of the season. That's so interesting. So when I look at the Exeter team, and we talk about this on the podcast all, all the time, I don't know who your first team is. So if I, if someone said to me, name the best Exeter 15, I couldn't tell you. I don't know who your best loose head is because you've got two two great ones. I know, you, you know, you, um, your two hookers, well, everyone would say it'd be Luke Cowan Dickey, but of course Jack Yendall has been club captain. So you obviously like him quite, quite a lot. And the reason I find that so interesting is because what you've told me there tell me if I've got this right, is the strength of the squad isn't necessarily your best 15. It is the prep that they put in, maybe not for this week, but for next week. So if I'm not seeing a player on the park, it might not be because he is not selected because he's you know out of form. He's, but he might just be getting ready, for the, getting ready for the week after. Well, there's an element, yeah, there's an element of that. There's an element of rotation and rest, and, and obviously you try and fresh things up. If you say, what I would say is, where you say you, can, you might not be able to name our necessarily our best 15, although there's positions you might be able to argue, if I said to you, Judith, you could name our best 26, 27, you probably could. Yes, yeah. yeah. And I think that, that's, the, that's about the reality of where we'd like to think we are, that if we can get to about that number, you, you give yourself that strength and depth when injuries happen. Mm. But as you say, you give yourself that opportunity to change up a number of the team, a bench rotating, et cetera, and it not changing the fit into the game plan. Probably probably what suits, what suits us when you talk about midweek fixtures and you talk about um, late changes to the opposition, et cetera, is that we do have a structure that a lot of our players understand with some depth. Yeah. So we tend to tweak things for the opposition rather than change things. 
and that probably helps us a little bit as well is that the things we change or the things we look at are, are tweaks to a to a standard process more than sh complete shifts in in system etc so you know I, I think and i think that's where you said well, i would say that, that 26 27 were very strong in that group of 26 27 players yeah they understand the process they can adapt and learn to any tweaks very quickly how so with your squad then how do you strike the balance between having them think as a squad and i think that's becoming increasingly more important now so you know you're on the bench you've got a job to do but also making sure that they're competitive with 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 each other wanting to win that starting position oh without listen there if you if you have the right people in your group they have it all don't they they have they have a desperation to start i mean you know, it sounds it sounds for obviously for what I'm saying, it sounds like they're all very comfortable with their position. But I'm not being funny. I said that we have more discussions with the front row because having the three on your back compared to the yeah. eighteen for a tight head is a massive thing. And yet the reality is is that the guys who are on the pitch when trophies get won and a final whistles blow are the guys with eighteen on the back. Yeah. And and it, it is and it is it is funny sometimes actually that the the biggest impact in the game can sometimes be from the guys who come off the bench, particularly in bigger games. Yeah. And, um, but at the same time, that natural human competitiveness says you want to be seen as the number one and you want to start. So we, we kind of we kind of have an expectation of both. We have an expectation that you're a competitive person. You should want to be the number one. But you also have to understand that, you know, as in a game that is so evolved around squads and a number of players that if you miss out one particular week, it doesn't, it doesn't, I, I, the easy way to talk about selection is if you get selected one week to start in a very important game, you're obviously a good player. Yeah. If the following week you get, get selected on the bench in a very important game, you don't go from being this level of player to dropping down to being this level of player. Yeah. You probably, your, your, your ability as a player hasn't changed. It isn't that you suddenly go one day when you get start, when you get to start, you're an international quality tight head. And, the, and you're on the bench, so that in the following week, that means you're not, because that's quite, quite obviously ridiculous. Yeah. And so we, we we talk to players quite openly about that. Yes, everybody everybody hurts around selections. Everybody wants to start. You should expect that from competitive sportsmen. But I think that's different. That 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 competitiveness and that hurt when you don't get selected is different to then having a non understanding of the importance of being a bench player or a squad player. Yeah. And I... So there is a difference. There is a difference between. Having a complete disregard for being a squad player, I don't think I don't think the two in modern rugby necessarily align now. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I guess I was going to say, like, how do you talk them back from the idea of I want to play, I want to play? Um, because of course, you know, that can have a, a toxic effect on a squad if you know you're too can, competitive. Yeah. But I guess you you could do that by filtering them out before they come to the club. If that makes well, sense. Well, there's two two things. If you if you can't if you 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 want you want good players at your squad. And so by wanting good players at your squad, what are you going to have? You're going to have a scenario where good players are not going to play. So there's, there's two things you've got to do there. A, you have to get, make, you have to try and create an environment where they feel they feel part of it and feel success to it. Yeah. Because there's also a reality, and I say this to a lot of guys now when, they're, when we're signing them, I say, look, you are going to have to understand, I want you to do everything you can to play. I want you to improve. I want you to work hard. I want you to show me all these qualities I'm going to ask of you. But it doesn't necessarily mean you're getting the team. Because we're wanting to be a team playing at a certain level, that means you have to be very, very good to get in. Now, I said, now, now what I say to those players is there's two ways to look at it. It might be tougher for you to get your initial games, but once you get into this team, all the benefits for you should be huge. 
So, and it's the same at any good team in England. You know, if you're an English qualified player and you're playing well in a team that's going well in the competition, what's likely to happen? Well, you've got a massive opportunity to play for England. You've got a massive opportunity to, to get another contract. You've got a massive opportunity for other teams to potentially want you because they've seen you as part of a good side. So we talk very openly to all the players about the benefits of coming to a side and, and working as hard as you can and buying into things, even if selection doesn't always go your way. Because you'll yeah. always benefit. You'll always, by, the, the truth is in sport, you're always, you'll always benefit by being a good guy and you'll very rarely benefit from being a, being a what should I call it? A, a, I'll, I'll, go as, I'll, go as, I'll go as polite as say a bad egg. Yeah. Because the reality is, if you're, if you're a bad egg at one club, most people will know that there's a reason you've left the club for certain reasons. And it, and it never benefits you in the long run. You know, rugby is a sport where, by, by being a good guy, and that doesn't mean that you, you walk around with a smile on your face every time you get dropped that you don't that you don't care. But there's a difference between being deliberately disruptive and creating problems for the group who are preparing, mm. and and not helping out that group who prepare. You know, without doubt, you know, most weeks the really the most important group are are the group who are hurting. And, and how well they prepare and how well they run as that shadow team, that's a massive part of the success of any side. And and that only works if there's a there's a buy-in that those guys understand that they will benefit from the whole squad benefiting. And that happens every single time in sport. When a squad understands that they all benefit from the benefit of the team on the by the by how well the team on the pitch play, you you're finding the you're finding the kind of the golden answer really. Yeah, just on the bad egg stuff, um, I mean, uh, I've spoke to a fair few Exeter players um, over the years, and they all tell me broadly the same thing, which uh, is they have a process of uh, being recruited to Exeter, and it does involve a, um, a bit of a chat with yourself at, at some point. Um, how do you uh, assess whether a player is a bad egg, or have they just, or they've come from a situation where you don't think the culture is quite for them? And then you've got to make a decision whether the extra culture will be right for them. It's it's it's, it's a little bit more complex than I think probably even the players realise because obviously the players sit down and they'll go, oh, like, "Rob, ask me some questions," and we see if we get on, and he'll say certain things. And I, I sometimes I ask them, I have them a bit of an odd question or, or something that tries to to knock them off their stride because obviously everybody prepares for you know what are your strengths, what are your weaknesses, etc. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll be honest with you, the, the one that probably tells me the most about a player is is whether they've got any self-awareness, genuine self-awareness. Because I think the guys who are coachable and the guys you can talk to, even if, they, even if they're odd or, or potentially you can see there's a, something their character means, means they might not fit in. But if you, if you can talk to them about their game in detail, to so the way they play, and if they have a self-awareness about how they play and genuinely what their strengths and weaknesses are, and, 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 actually, and you see things the same way, for me, that is a massive massive in into working with them if i sit down with a player and, and i i do i do take the time to look in player players games in detail we don't we don't kind of sign someone on a whim you know yeah. I'll, I'll sit down and look at them in detail and when i mean detail i mean every single thing they do on a rugby field not just look through highlight packages or clips that other people put together you know you watch the whole game but you i, I tend to watch the whole game and clip and just watch them through the whole game don't don't watch the game just watch them and 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 take a a recording of every action they do. Now, when I say every action, that doesn't mean every tackle, every clear out. That means how how they move around the field. So, are they working in a kick chase? Do they work if the if a try looks like it's going to be scored against them? What's their body language reaction? All those type of things. And I think when I ask the players and I ask them to describe themselves and how they play and what I feel their emotional state is during the game, if they've got an awareness of it 
and, and some guys some guys are very aware of their weaknesses and they'll talk quite openly about them. You can work with that guy yeah. because you can ask him. You can ask him after you review a game with him, why did you do this? You know that doesn't work here. You know we won't have that. You can work with them and you can do the same. You can do the same if there are a guy around the training ground who's not doing what they should do. Because because very quickly by you pointing out they'll have an awareness. The guys the guys who when I, that really concern me when I sit in a meeting and I'll ask them something and they, they won't see what actually is it. And then sometimes the good things in their game as well. They won't see actually what their game's genuinely about. And also, if I highlight something, they just—you can tell straight away—they just—they just don't get even what I'm talking about. That to me is, is like a warning signal, yeah. Because it's—it's it's, it's signaling to me that when I sit down with you in a tough meeting, and it might be about selection, and it might be about why we're not picking you, or it might be about things you want to improve. If you want to sit there and go, well, no, I disagree with that, and not even—and and I, I have no problem with a player disagreeing with me as long as their argument can stack up, yeah. But if someone's just going to disagree because they don't like it then straight away, that doesn't just highlight what they're like as a rugby player. That's going to highlight pretty much what they're like in life. That there's no way to even talk to them about how to think about things slightly differently or how to make an emotional shift around certain elements. And so it's not, I think, I think players sometimes don't understand. The guys who come over and they come over as very genuine. It doesn't really matter what character they are as long as it's genuine. And, and it's, and it's there for a reason, and they understand the reasons why they are like they are. So it's not it's not one type of character we go for, and it's yeah. not one. It's so that, that's why when we say that's why sometimes when the players say we're a bunch of odd odd misfits, odd, odd misfits who fit together, they are they are odd and they are kind of misfits, but they fit together because they have a they have a single characteristic they may not be aware of. That's incredible. So, uh, so uh, it's that's not what I was expecting, really. Uh, I kind of was expecting to say, well, we look for this, this, and this, and you know, if they have it, we'll sign them. But effectively, you could sign someone who might not have had the greatest game, for instance, and that you've reviewed that. But so long as they are aware that they haven't had the had the greatest game, or they're not a complete rugby player, the point is that they've recognised it, and therefore you can work with them. Yeah, definitely, hundred percent. Because uh, because what what you know, there's there's no point signing. What, what is the point of signing any player who who isn't open to improving? Yeah. Because if you sign a player who isn't open to improving, then what are you signing a player for? You sign a player whose only pathway is to stay the same or get worse. And if they don't actually fit, if they don't fit in immediately into your side, well, what do you do? Is you change your whole team to fit around them? Well, you know, there's, there's, there's so many instances where that's going to just lead to problems for you. And you, and you probably see that in a lot of sides. So we that, for me, you know, doesn't matter that doesn't matter the quality of the player, what they've achieved so far in their rugby career. That, that, and, and sometimes, and I don't mind telling you, you know, sometimes we, we sit here as a group of coaches and we say to each other, we're going to have to stay strong if we're going to bend this guy a little bit. And most of them, most of them, will, most of them will go that way. And the, and the players, the players are a group who've become aware of it. So the players will help you as well. The players, the players will say things to other players about getting in line 100%. So because, I, I, because, they've, because they've had the success from it. So I guess that has tremendous impact on your salary cap because you can effectively go out and buy guys for better value. If you understand where the potential value is in the future, you can get them now for their current value, I guess. Well, that, that's, the, that's the whole point of recruitment, isn't it? The whole point of recruitment is to find to try and add value to, to a player. Yeah. If your recruitment is... Well, there's two things, obviously. There's, there's always various reasons. You, you can have a bit of an injury crisis and so you're needing to strengthen the squad and you need somebody who's ready to go. 
but I think if you, when you need someone who's ready to go, you still need to try and add value to that person who's ready to go. Even if you know you're, they're only going to be here for six months, you still want them playing better in month four than in month one, don't you? And yeah. better in month five than in month four. You know, you want those kind of things to be happening, regardless of the fact you can or can't keep them. Mm. And I think, so even then you want to be able to see that. But on the whole, you know, recruitment, especially longer-term recruitment, needs to be based on what, you, what that yes, you can see a way into the team, but also that you can see an improvement not only for them but also for the team. And I think I think that I think that's I think it's changed slightly for us over this over the seasons when we were first in the, in the Premiership and our salary, our, we we, we didn't work didn't work salary cap for a long time. We worked to a budget. And initially, when we were in the Premiership, you know, you, you, there was a range of players that were outside of our rate pay range anyway, and most of our recruitment was based around how quickly could we get players up to Premiership standard and beyond. Whereas, whereas now it's slightly different. They have to be able to fit in at a higher level, so to speak. Yeah. So fitting in at a high level and then adding value, that's a slightly different range of player and takes bet it is. probably a little bit harder now than it used to be. And are you looking, you know, as a baseline, I guess, do you have uh, minimum requirements on, for instance, physical size, physicality, that kind of thing? Is that the difference now? You need the better, the better standard of athletes? There is an element, obviously, there's a, because there is, without doubt, you know, if you if you talk about a second row, there's an element you can't, they're not going to be six foot and, do you know what I mean, 15 stone. So there's an element around that. Um, but there's also, an, there's also an element of it's not just about size. I mean, there's a few movement pattern things that I like to keep my eye on, but that's something, there's no point me trying to explain it. That's just something that I've seen from coding hundreds of games of rugby so, for Exeter and sorry, hundreds of... I know you said there's no point in explaining it, but I kind of feel that I need to push you a bit further. Well, there's things. There. There's, there's some things you've got to be able to keep up your sleeve as a, as a recruiter <laughs> of players that you just don't want everybody because otherwise it's getting hard. It's getting harder and harder to find these guys anyway. Yeah, because everybody's doing it. But so I mean, do you mean like I don't, just wanna, the... I don't want to throw out every secret we do around recruitment? But I mean, do you mean just like the fluidity of how the guy runs? Like if he looks like a bag of spanners, probably not for you. I don't really want to get drawn into this anymore because <laughs> I'm, I'm going to I'm going to say something I regret saying at some stage. But but the things like that. So there's there's a lot of things I think you learn. Like I said, there's a lot of things you learn about people, and there's a lot of things you learn as a rugby coach by watching an awful lot of rugby. Yes. I think if someone said to me if they wanted any advice on on becoming a coach or recruitment or whatever it is, and the first thing I would say to them is, "How much rugby do you watch?" And when I say rugby, how much deep, how much rugby do you watch in absolute detail? And I think most people would. They wouldn't quite twig it. And when I say that, I mean, you know, at Exeter here as an example, ever since I've coached full-time here, every single senior game of rugby, you know, first team game of rugby that's played here, I have coded every single player's action, every single thing they've done every I have, week. I've heard that you and do this on the bus. Is that correct? I do, on, a, on an away game, yeah, I'll start on the bus on the way home. Um, and, and do it at home games, obviously I'll do it, get it home and do it. And... It's something I still do now. Uh, when we recruit, I'll, as I say, I'll go through a player's every second of a player's game. Um, I, I, obviously, to start with, I don't. Because obviously, I get sent players all the time. Yeah. So to start with, I'll look at that highlight reel. And then if I think, oh, they're worth looking at, I'll look at so their optic clips. If I still think they're looking at then I'll, I'll start doing the full game analysis stuff. So I don't oh. just go straight to it with every single player because there's just not that enough time in the world to yeah. do that. But, but I think the stuff you learn around movement and things like this, it's like if you really want, if you really want to break down how the All Blacks play and how South play, don't, don't listen to what pundits say and don't just watch a game on a Saturday having a beer, which I still like to do. Don't get me wrong. I yeah. still like to watch an international game 
without any pressure, watch just watch it, enjoy watching my lads play, have a beer, chill out. I like to watch games as a sport as well. But if you really want to watch that, really work out how the All Blacks play and around the mythology of some of the stuff over the years, sit down, sit down and, and, and genuinely pick out five or six players and analyse every single thing they do. And I think people would be so surprised at how much structure is there, there is in so much of their game that then allows some of the stuff that everybody talks about to happen. Yeah. And I think you learn so much when you prepare to do that level of that detail into things. And I do think that there's there's an awful lot that gets talked talked around <laughs> rugby that completely ignores the detail that some of the top teams that are preparing to do things that genuinely do. That's yeah, okay. So there's quite a lot there. Um it's particularly in the detail because uh, and I think particularly with Exeter too. I mean, you don't do it that often, but I say once a season, you in particular will surprise me with something which you say in in an interview. And I just like to kind of get the thought process behind how you decide that you want to start with a concept and then add it into a game. So I'll, I'll give you an, an easy one. So um, if, you know, was it last season or the season season before last? You hadn't taken a, a kick at sticks for something like five like like five games. It was all driving driving to the line another one which i found really interesting i don't know if you if you stuck with it so maybe you'd like to comment on that a bit but you're running exits uh, i've i've heard of rugby league teams doing running exits i've never heard of a heard of a rugby union team trying try, try, trying to do uh, running exits uh, there's i mean there's also a, a couple of more that i can think of but yeah let's start with those two well the, the kick it, the kick it goal one for me is just about maximizing your opportunities, but also maintaining pressure. You know, I'm I'm a big one for my my big belief is you've got you've got a couple of ways into really trying to control a game. Okay, the biggest biggest thing you can do to control a game during the week is you 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 make sure you work hard through preseason forever, and you create an attitude amongst your players that you're going to be fit and strong. Yeah. So if you're fit and strong, what do you want a game of rugby to look like? Well, you don't want a game of rugby to look like we played at a snail's pace where the opposition who might not be as fit as you can actually maximise their strengths all the way through the game, across the whole game, because they never fatigue. Mm. So if you're going to say you're going to be fit in the team, what do you want? You want a fatigue element in the game. Well, just kicking, a, just taking a shot. This is just one perfect example of why you might not take a shot. I'm not going to go through every one of them. Yeah, I'm yeah. just going to tell you our whole game plan, aren't I? But a perfect example is, what does a shot of goal do? Well, a shot of goal gives the opposition a chance to rest, Okay, gives them a chance to recharge whatever battery they're under, um, and the next thing that happens is that they kick the ball into your territory. So, and you've only scored three points. You haven't you haven't scored a game changing amount of points. So, there's one perfect example. So, if if what you need to do is have things that can that align. So, if you align around, we're gonna we're gonna drive ourselves to have a certain level of fitness. Well, why have a certain level of fitness if at every opportunity you have to take a rest, you take it? Which means <sighs> someone goes down injured at scrum time. Um, so props, so everybody has a rest. When you kick the ball off the pitch, everyone walks to the line out. When you have the chance to take a shot or go, you take the shot or go. So just slowing the game down so there's as little game ball in play time as possible. Now, some teams who may be power-based and want it to be like that, they'll try and create that game. Yeah. That's not the type of game we're trying to create. And so that's one reason why we kick the corner. Now, it's only one reason. And like I said, I don't, I don't want to go to it through every reason because oh, I'm just going to sit yeah. here and tell you every single thing that we do all the time. Which is, so which is fine purpose. by me, by the way. One, per, one perfect example. 
So running exits is another is another example exactly the same. So if we're we're a massively organised kick from kick exit team, everyone will know that. That's that's not me giving away our game plan. Yeah. If you watch this watch this now. That's what you see most of the time. So what do you do if the opposition? Well, next draw is going to kick. So what we're going to do? Well, we, we'll put three, maybe four people in the backfield. So we'll kick off, kick the game off. We're probably going to back ourselves extra. Going to kick back. So we'll maybe hold three in the backfield. Winger. 15, maybe number eight. Our other wide backs are probably going to get ready to to leave the defensive line early because they're expecting a counter-attack opportunity because we also keep the ball on the field. We don't kick it off the field. So if you're the opposition, say, right, well, our chance of attacking Exeter is a quick counter-attack when they kick to us. Well, if they're if they're trying to over-prepare to return, that's when you might force in a run exit. Right. Because A, you might hurt them because they've got limited numbers in the front line. But also you create an oh, light's gone off. Yep. Sorry. <laughs> also you create an, also you create a scenario where the next time they're gonna to have to defend you. Yeah. They're gonna to have to keep numbers in the front line. Or the opposition who are analysing you for next week go, Well, hold on, if we do drop numbers out the front line, Exeter will see it and they'll run. Ah and okay. so you don't it's not always about oh let me just turn them turn the lights back on. Yeah, sure. Oops, here we go. So so it's not always about what you get right in that moment. You know, you, you, you're always trying to do things that will influence the week, that day, the next week, that season. Yeah. So I actually had a suspicion about this, and I, I wonder if I'm, if I'm wrong, wrong or right. Um, it was your game against Saracens, and I can't remember which one it was, whether it was last... It wasn't this season, it must have been last season. And you won towards the end with a driving mall. I don't know if you remember that one. Um, but you've been kicking to the corner pretty much every every, every opportunity. And my theory on that was you were kicking to the corner, and even though you were failing, you did get over eventually. It's a a build up of pressure, but also a psychological blow. To it was almost like a, you were playing a psychological game against them, but also the team who you're going to see next see see next week because they know what's coming. I think I think there's a bigger picture going on around the the, the driving more thing because. And this is probably like my, I know my forwards coach gets re- really, relatively frustrated by it because we've obviously had an element of success about it. But I, I, I can tell you why we have an element of success about it. A, we're pretty good at it. Yeah. But B, the opposition are always trying to find a clever way of stopping it. Yeah. And when I when I say this to you, we, we're not bothered about scoring from driving malls. Okay. So that that's the bit of the the, the farce around it. We score from a driving driving mall if the opposition don't put enough players there to stop us. Yeah. If the opposition want to stop us, and this is this is my big frustration when people start talking about should malls be disallowed, uh, uh, should should malls be depowered and all this kind of stuff. You don't need to depower a mall; you just need to defend it properly. But to defend it, if people want malls to be, if people want an eight-man mall to be defended by four players, they're getting the whole concept of rugby union wrong. Yes. The whole point of a mall is that it's an opportunity for you to tie in opposition people. So if the opposition want to put in plenty of players, and the teams that was had a good deal of success against us in the final, what did they do? They committed all their forwards to it. Hmm. And and they, and they had some success with it. If you want to commit all your forwards to it, we'll, we'll score a different way. If you want to commit all your players to it, we will then pass and try and score where there's space. Yeah, it's, it's a, We look at it very simply. If you don't want to defend them all and you want to stand all your backs out and two forwards because you're worried about us running, well, we'll keep pushing until we, we score. So it's all, 
I think this is, a, this is a huge this is the huge thing about rugby that really I find really interesting. Yeah, agreed. For me, it's not it's not that complex, and we've I think we just decomplicated it, and I think that's what's annoying people in a way. Yeah, is that they uh, don't want to just do the simple things. If you want to stop our mall, there's a simple way of stopping it. You commit people to it, <laughs> but people people don't want to do that because then they'll say, oh, but if we commit people to it, you might pass the ball and score. But that's rugby. That's yeah, the whole point I, of it. I'm so glad you said that because. Um, in my in my little club team up, up here in Manchester, that that is exactly the principle. We maul to commit players, and then when you've committed um, one of the players on the open side, usually usually the usually the inside centre as you're driving in, well then you can play. But we're only going to play okay. once you, once you've committed the player. Exactly. Why else would we? Exactly, and you, and yet I, I read it over and over again about whether it's boring. Well, we'll we'll be as boring as the opposition makers be. And that's how we look at it. We don't look at it like I think everyone thinks it's so driven by us. Yeah, most of what we do is driven by the opposition. Yeah, but, but everybody refuses to accept it. Yeah, it's like the box kick too. Everyone thinks that the box kick is boring. Well, we'll stop box kicking when you move more players back, and then there'll be more space. It, that's how it you works. Put your, you put you put your players all back there because you're worried about it, and we'll run. Yeah. So this this is the thing. It's not. I don't. I really. It really is the thing that frustrates me the most about when people try and deconstruct rugby and trying to trying to create a different game. Because if you try and create a different game at rugby union, you create absolute mayhem. Yeah. Once you, if you depower a scrum and you depower a mall and you've got fifteen guys running around on the field, all they're doing is running and tackling. We'll create two things. We'll create big defensive lines that are very hard to breach. But what is the what is the big Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The big question around rugby union health and safety at the moment is mainly concussion. Where do concussions happen? They happen in tackle areas. Yeah. How can you increase more tackles? Ball straight out of scrum yep. is a perfect example. So ball immediately in and out of scrum with, with players who are fresh, more conditioned to be in rug, rugby league type players, almost tacklers and carriers. What are you going to do? You have more tackles, more rucks, more concussive uh, situations. So, the people who are desperately trying to deconstruct rugby, what it is, need to just stop and go. Hold on. Well, what? What are they? What are the? What is? The, what are the outcomes of all these things we want? We want scrums just to come together, ball in and gone. Well, you're going to do away with big props. You're going to do away with heavyweight locks. You're going to do away with probably your heavyweight number six, for example. So what, what's going to happen then? 
A, also, if a ball's just in and out of a scrum, are your back row going to be scrummaging? No. What does that mean? Yes, they can be away and attack, but they can be away and defend as well. Yeah, exactly right. All these, all these scenarios, where's the fatigue element going to be when they're not having to defend them all? Where's the fatigue element going to be on these packs of forwards that allow your, your Shane Williams? Everyone's, everyone's talking about, oh, it's a shame about all these smaller backs when at the game. Well, they'll disappear from the game completely if you do away with a set piece. Because what is the beauty of a guy like that is he can pick off bigger, slower, tired players in an opposition team. Yeah. The minute the minute you change away from the power part of the game, and this is what people just don't, I don't, and I talk to very intelligent people about this, and they just can't comprehend it. So the minute you take away the power battle around a scrum and a maul, around what the forwards have to do, you remove the opportunity for any of your smaller backs or any of these people you're talking about you want to see more of in the game you remove the opportunity from them. If you want to see more of the smaller guys in the game, you need to create more fatigue in your forwards, which means you you oh, you repower the scrum even more. You repower the line out the more even more. Because the reality is, if you really empower those things, and the only way to stop them is to really fight and work against them, then you create a massive fatigue element in the game, which allows your fresher, nimbler, smaller backs to have a bigger part in the game, not a smaller part. And yeah. it really, really drives me crazy with people who have, who obviously do so little proper analysis of games of rugby, think that the way to bring quick people into the game is to have less competitive scrums and malls. Yeah, do, because there's there's not one piece of common sense that backs that up. Yeah, do you know what the one which gets me at the moment is when referees tell the eight or the nine to play the ball from the eight's feet, because if I'm a back row on the opposition side and I can see the ball at the eight's feet and I know that the referee is going to say play it why am I going to push whereas if I'm then caught if I'm thinking of leaving the scrum and then there's a secondary push from the attacking side well we're going to we're going to concede a penalty so the idea of speeding up it actually hasn't helped because now back rows can get can get off the back of back of the back of the scrum quicker that's right there's 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 a few things that that have been drifted in for and I can understand why some of them have drifted in, because some of them have drifted in around player, player welfare, player safety, trying to avoid things like scrum collapses, et cetera. But, but I do think, as you say, there are a few things that are, you're, you think you're creating a cleaner game, but actually you're creating a, a game of less opportunities yes. for the attacking team. And people don't quite understand the concepts around. It's a, it's a little bit like, when you talk about the scrum, how many times now you see a kind of pundit saying, oh, this everything takes too long around a scrum. Yes, my but pet hates. It does. I, I 100% agree. It does take too long. And if someone said to me, "Can you? Would you like a, a minimum time scrum setup?" Etc. Of, of course, I would. It, it's the kind of game we want to play. We want to move from moment to moment, moment to game quite a lot. That's what suits us. But there is a reality. You know, the scrum engagement process happened for legal reasons. Yeah. The, you know, you have to be able. You had. We had to be able to defend referees, and not just pr- professional referees. But school teachers who were refereeing games of rugby, etc. You know, when when pupils started to sue school teachers who were refereeing games of rugby because they said they weren't in control of the scrum process, how are you supposed to deal with that? You have to have a scrum process that shows there's an element of control that takes time, and a referee cannot or can also he can't make a decision on an injured player. He's, that's just not fair. He 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 cannot yes. legally make a call on an injured player. So if a prop goes down on a knee at a scrum and says he requires treatment, the referee has to stop the game to allow physio to come on and give that player treatment. Then they have to get up and they have to go through a process 
that look that 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 shows that they are in control that there's an element of control before those teams engage and come together now that takes time now we created that we as a society created that by saying well if if you want to be a society where you play sport and you're allowed to sue the referee because he's not in control of something well you can't blame the rug- rugby when it says right well we've got to put a process in place that shows we're in control yeah and that we did these things and now we've suddenly we're saying they are scrums take too long we created the scrum engagement process as a game. No one made us do it. We created that for a reason. What are we supposed to do now? Remove it? Well, it's well, an interesting... We can't remove, we can't remove the scrum process yeah. now. We can't. It's impossible. It's an interesting thought, though, isn't it? Because the, one of the thoughts I have about the scrum engagement process is we probably wouldn't have props the size and power that they are without the process. Because the process makes it more and more special. If you look back, I mean, I don't want to go back to the late 1980s where they just ran to the scrum as fast as they could bound up without any process and went went in but they were faster um well Mm. sorry they were proportionally faster now i i love seeing big props so it's not really 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 an issue to me and in terms of scrum setup as well i actually enjoy watching the setup I, i like to see how each each prop binds and you know how the process works works for different teams i appreciate that isn't the mainstream point of view but i do enjoy it the the regulations around the scrub have made bigger players. I don't think there's any any yeah. doubt about that. Hundred percent. We 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 we. This this is what people need to stop. We create the the rules, the the laws of the game, create how the game gets played, and the players who play it. Yeah. And if if you if you're not prepared when you make a law change to accept that you're doing that, then you, this is the trouble. You you're making laws without taking enough genuine time onto what's happening. I'll give you a perfect perfect example. I mean, the really obvious one that happened, wasn't it, was when they tried to improve the game by saying you can't kick the ball out if, on the full if it's passed back into your 22. Yeah. Thinking that would make that would improve the game. Okay? And at the same time as they did it, they also said, oh, we're going to give the, the defending team more leeway in jackling, didn't they? Yes. They kind of did the, the two at the same time. And what they thought was, so once one thing they introduced, I suppose for for reasons of well people will run instead of kick but what all it meant was you you kick the ball down the field instead of off the field and at the same time if you ran it they gave the opposition more of a chance to turn you over so what did oh, they yeah. do so we we, <laughs> we create the game that was just bombs that's all it was it was bombs people were just bombing yeah the other thing that they took out of the game and no one really commented on time Every, everyone who's watched rugby over a period of time and remember scrums just outside the 22 Scrum half passes back to the fly half. Fly half kicks it off the field, opposition line out, and the player would applaud. Well done, good kick, good kick. Like that was good play. Yeah. Well, actually, now that would be seen as very. That would be deemed as pretty bad play if that scrum was just inside the twenty-two, because all. But but when you think about what we used to do, we used to think that was good play, and all you really did was give the opposition an attacking line out. And what do you want as an attack? You want attacking set piece as your trigger points. Yes. So we, we actually removed a huge element of attack by stopping teams doing what they naturally did, which was just kick the ball off the field and give the opposition attacks. <laughs> so we, we actually thought we were we actually thought we were going to create more attacks, and we actually removed attacks because what happened was everyone just started kicking it long. Yeah, they did, and, add- and, defend, and, and defending, and and the opposition thought, well, why don't want to run from here, and we're not allowed to kick it off the field, so we'll just kick it back. And we went through that year of games of rugby where we just kicked tennis and everyone else say, oh, 
And what? how did they solve it? They solved it by taking away the power of the jackler again, didn't they? And making it easier for you to keep the ball. Yeah, so... then, we started getting, then we started to go through the process of getting bored with keeping the ball. And then the next law change, next kind of weird law change we chuck in is the, um, whereas before a referee could always referee, um, on his view, two people challenging for the ball in the air, if he viewed it was a genuine competition for the air, he would leave that as a non-penalty, as long as it's genuine competition in the air. Yeah. Of course, we introduced this rule. Oh, if a player's in the air and you're not in the air, it's your responsibility to look after him. And it doesn't matter if you're looking at the ball. It doesn't, it doesn't matter all this kind of stuff. And it could be a red card. And, all stuff. and so, well, well, how do you protect yourself? Well, you've both got to be in the air competition-wise. So we create this law that's supposed to be for player safety, safety, protect the guy who's in the air. And what we do is say, well, the only way to protect yourself as a player from getting a red card is you've got to be in the air as well. Yeah. So we went from a, we went from a competition where you could have at least one of the guys might be in, might actually be in control and on the floor, and as long as they're legal and they're not doing anything wrong, if the guy flips over them, yet there's still an element of danger. But actually, what we did we do with that law change? We actually created now we have two out of control people now competing for the ball, because as long as you're both in the air, neither of you can get red carded or yellow carded. So the only way you've got to coach yourself, coach a winger now to compete for the ball is they have to be in the air. So you, regardless of whatever the scenario is, you pretty much have to get two guys in the air contesting for every ball. Well, how is that safer? How is that? How is that safety? How is that rule safer now than it used to be? Yeah, it's, it's impossible because now you've got to literally to have yourself any chance of not getting yellow carded if you're competing for a ball. You have to jump. You have to jump. You have to throw yourself pretty much into a contact area in the air with no, with very little safety for your own own regard. You watch it on a game, and when it's good, it looks incredible. But you think we we actually went out of our way to create that for safety? Yeah. That, I... that moment you see now was created for safety reasons. wasn't Wasn't created to make a spectacle. It's an amazing spectacle. I think it's a huge, incredible part of the game. I think it's I think it's fantastic, massively skillful part of the game. Yeah. But that was created for safety reasons. Well, it doesn't look like there's one safe thing about it, does there? Well, Not I don't really. think. I mean, it's kind of how you phrase the, the phrase the kicking thing you, you know I, I think the way that you that you think rob is kind of like an economist which is you know you see the regulation and then you see the downstream events from the regulation and it's got nothing to do with the actual regulation in the first place that's right uh, and i can see that so you know the way that you phrase the thing about uh, kicking from passing back and kicking from inside your 22 you know they thought that, that would give you more attacking uh, attacking opportunities on, or, or make you run more. Actually, what it did is it put more pressure on you know, teams with possession, but effectively in defence. Does that make sense? Yes. That's so right. that's, It took that's away your it. options. Yeah. It, it removed just, your options. It put you under more pressure. It, made, it put you under more pressure because you removed the options for the defence. They go, well, they have to kick, they, they're not going to kick this out the full. So they, you actually remove the, you move the options for yeah, that team to attack. Uh, it's, and it's, it's one of the, it's one of those ridiculous it's one of those ridiculous things that was just done, and and never really got blue. I'm not in a way. I'm glad it did happen because rugby's gone through the process over two or three years now, where to, to just kick off the field. I mean, it does happen sometimes. It's actually seen as relatively negative, isn't it? Which is which has ended up being a relatively good thing. But to start with, I mean, I think the game would have developed anyway. But when you think about it, some some of these regs that they just didn't realise how they were going to change the game. Have, have made huge differences that they that no one's been aware of, and we're still dealing with the consequences of them now. And obviously, one of the big consequences, every, and I said this, I said this to people who talk about the medical issues around concussion. 
can can anyone tell me a law change that hasn't created more more ball in playtime or more tackles? No one can. Yeah. And yet it's the area of the game that where that it causes the most injury. And yet every law change we make potentially makes happen when you stop and think about them. You know, so playing the ball away from scrums. You know, um, telling referees to play the way the ball away from walls that are potentially sometimes still moving. They all create more ball in playtime. Yeah, that, that's very normal. And that's the most dangerous area of the game. Yeah. Now I'm not saying it's not making a better game. I'm not saying that, but the two the two aren't always aligning, are they? And that's oh, slightly frustrating. Are you ever a little bit worried that your success uh, with Exeter, and I use Exeter as a good example here because you do do a few things which uh, I love, but not everyone else does. So, for instance, your pick and go game is absolutely brutal, and I think it's one of the most glorious things in all of rugby. But you could see a regulator looking at that and going, do you know what, this is too successful now. We're going to have to depower that. Or, again, the latch carry. I mean, the latch carry is not something which I imagine regulators like, but I love, but, but I, but I love to watch. Are you, are you ever aware that maybe your, your success is storing up problems for the future? Not, not particularly, because then you just, you just move on, don't you? you that, that's, that's an evolution of a team, an evolution of coaching, an evolution of players. I think there are some things that I think people look at again, look at some things and go, "Oh well." If, if, what I would say is, if it if it was that easy to do, then why isn't everyone doing it? And I and I think I think for people to say or or doing it successfully, because I don't. This is the bit that, that annoys me the most: is you don't just get five meters out from the opposition try line. You don't you don't pick and <laughs> yeah. you don't pick and go ninety five meters to get five meters out, do you? Yeah. It's just one part of an arsenal of weapons that get you to from try line to try line. And we've got a number of them that move us from try line to try line. And that's just something we do efficiently in the end. If and I and I'm, this is what I would suggest is if you started saying as you're as you're saying, if they said, Right, you can't be bound to a ball player before say before he makes contact with the opposition. Yeah. It actually happens all over the field in different circumstances. You'll see it all over the field. You see it from teams setting up kicks to leave their 22. Are you going to ban it there as well? Or Because what will happen is it will come in to stop five-minute pick and go, but we'll be chucking penalties all over the field. You yes. know, if a, if a centre carries in midfield and his opposition centre gets to him quickly and just touches him before he makes contact, is that going to be a penalty? You know, are you going to start saying those things happening all over the field? If How, how, are, you going to re- how are you going to referee a line-out when the lifters are in contact with the guy who's got the ball when he lands, before the opposition touch him, because in yeah. fact that's a latch carry. You know what? What are you? You know, just what I mean. What yeah. are you? Where? Where? Where are you going to stop it? If a line out, if a, a kickoff receipt again, there's a lift, and as he lands, you touch him, but the two guys have lifted him are still touching him. Yeah, a latch carry, and so it's a penalty. What? Do you see what I mean? I think it's almost like you've thought of this before, Rob. Well, it, it, you don't need I don't, you don't need more than ten seconds to think about where how would you referee a, a latch being a latch or not a latch. Yeah, you, t- do you see what I mean? Is it is it bodily contact? Is it one part of there? Are they going to say, oh, you can't? It's the only, you, you can do it anywhere else in the field. We can't do it in your five minutes opposite dry line. It's you know, do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's yeah. going to be it's going to be one of those things. I just think it's an evolution of things. Any, anything anything a team doing rugby, you can stop. But you you have to, you can't stop. But, uh, what, but at what, what cost? Rugby should be, what rugby should be like is you can stop any one thing, but you shouldn't be able to stop everything. Yeah. And it's like I said about the more, you you can you can stop our pick and go if you condense your if you condense your defence enough. Mm-hmm. But that makes something else open. 
but you but uh, I, but I don't think you should go. Oh, we we want the laws to be so that we it's easy to defend everything. Yeah. That's that's not sport then. If you that's that would be like a, a premiership premiership going. We want our goals to be three foot wide <laughs> because we want to be able to defend everything. You never, you'd never dream of doing it, would you? And no. yet in, in in rugby, we tend to talk about it all the time. It's, it seems madness, doesn't it? Yeah, I think well, I think the problem with rugby is there's a lot, of, a lot of insecurity about what the sport is and who we're appealing to, and we're constantly trying to appeal to new fans. When actually, I don't think we've quite got the people who would love rugby fully on board yet. So I, I think we should we should focus more on the people that would love it rather than this imaginary group of people who we don't even know would like it, even if we changed every law possible. For me, and I've said this many a time, I think there's a sim- there's a simple rule that we need to think about which will definitely help more people enjoy rugby. And it's a rule that should say we should stop changing the rules. Oh, completely agree. Because there is nothing, and I deal with this all the time. You know, I've got friends who are kind of rugby supporters and they know me and they'll, and they'll love watching their rugby. But they are, you know, from season to season, rules and, regu- and laws change. And, and the, minute, the minute you kind of get a grasp on it, something can change. And sometimes it's quite fundamental, stuff around the tackle area yeah. and around set piece. And how can you ever develop a a consistent um, understanding of the of the laws from supporters? But b what's the other area of the game that kind of constantly gets criticised is the 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 um, consistency of refereeing. We're asking our referees to change how they referee on a continual basis. Yeah, it's never the same for them. Even during a season, they get asked to, to look at things differently. Even during one season, to directives. The next, so these directives. I mean, and yet, and, yet, and yet you see people moaning continually about the consistency referee, and yet we haven't got a consistent set of laws from one season to the next. It's it's absolutely, you know, it's an absolute joke. You know, I think the referees, I, mean, I don't mind saying it, I think the referees do an, do an amazing job. I do as well. All, they get, all they're getting told to do is change every five minutes. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it, it's, they it's, are phenomenally, it's, well, particularly in the Premiership. Uh, I can't speak for other yeah. leagues, but in the Premiership, I think they're remarkably professional and even yeah. when they're wrong you can see why they might be right and i think that's yeah. quite important too there's a real consistency a real consistency and a real good process they go through on a weekly basis to produce what they're producing mm-hmm. and, and and i always think that as, as you've just said the best way to, to to judge a referee in performance is i get why he's done that yeah if, if you can say at most decisions ah i i, I see what you're seeing there or i get why he's done that I don't think you can complain too much. Yeah, you know, it's almost like so a bit, much fifty-fifty on a rugby field. It's almost like a bit of a cottage industry, though, isn't it? I mean, there are people around the game who are employed to change the laws on a constant basis, and you know, yes. maybe they wouldn't <laughs> be happy if the laws stayed the same. <laughs> There's a lot. Of, well, I don't know. I'm just one of the. I'm just maybe. I'm just one of these people who who love, who love rugby for what it is. Yeah, you know, and I think that's my biggest thing. I love it for what it is. And I love it for the, the uh, looking at the mixture of people we've got and the mixture of body shapes and the lads who can come through the Academy and, you know, every single one of them looks different. You know, it's like the Munsters in there some mornings. You know? <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's that's brilliant. That's what rugby's about. You know, he's, he's giving every size and shape an opportunity to play a game, play a sport. Hmm. And, and it just seems like everything we're trying to do all the time is to try and take away what's the very, the, the very ethos and the very lifeblood of what rugby's all about. Couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. And I don't know how they expect this community experiment. I don't know if you've seen the uh, the, the news, but obviously COVID means that we've got to change certain things. But playing the game without scrums and malls, to me, isn't worth playing. I mean, it's literally not worth playing. Go sign up and play rugby league. And I don't mean that in a, in a flippant way either. Rugby league's a fantastic sport. And if I wanted that, I'd go and play it. I do play it in, in the summer. But... 
why bother with rugby union? Just fold, just 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 close it up, and then we'll start playing when we can play the real game again. Well, I think there's two, there's two things that you can do. I think you either, if you're going to do that, I think maybe you don't. See, my personal opinion with with a community game at a certain level is they should look at it a little bit more like the lower leagues of football, where they're allowed crowds and they're allowed a little bit of interaction. In that, all right, if you're really uncomfortable around the contact elements of it, which I can understand around the, the current environment, say to rugby clubs, oh, you could play a a touch tens before a game or a competition or some sevens touch competitions or whatever, but allow them to have local derbies or, or whatever it is. On a, just, just, it doesn't have to be league or whatever, but let, you know, Bar- down here, Barnes will play South Moulton in the tennis side touch tournament and let them have a, a, a crowd and open the bar, socially distance, whatever, but at least allow, allow them to do it for a reason. So they're doing it for a little bit of revenue a little bit of interaction between the players, a little bit of, you know, don't try and make it out to be rugby. Make it out to be what it is. It's a it's a, it's a community competition, so to speak, or whatever, however you want to call it, and, and, and separate it off completely from rugby, and we'll start rugby again when we can do it. We're going to have to do something with the community game to allow them to actually have a facility that people can go and play at. Yeah. Because it's not, it's not going to be long before some of these clubs, they won't even be able to maintain the pitch. There won't, there won't be any point talking about rugby for them because they won't have anything they're going to have to run around on. You know, it'll just more. turn into a field. You know, it'll just turn into a weed patch. Yeah. And I think there's, there's an element we've got to, there's some things we, we've got to be able to do. And then they're all based around finding a way of letting them have some kind of a finance. Yeah, I, I completely agree with all of that. And, you know, without rugby, it's very hard to get the volunteers motivated to come and move, like, move the pitch. Well, what's the point? We're not going to play on it for, you know, six months. So yeah. it's, uh, it's something which and then is... You remove, then you remove all the opportunities for lads to go and train and run around and stay fit and, yeah. you know, stay, stay involved in something that isn't, you know, sitting at home playing on Game Boy or going out looking for trouble. Right? You know, we everyone, everyone knows the social outcomes of, of lads and, and young lads and young girls not being able to go and run around and stay Absolutely. fit and stay active. You know, the, the social outcomes are massive. Now, just moving the conversation on a little bit, I had this thought the other day. Um, and I, I know a fair few doctors. And uh, this problem that doctors have, fundamentally, is you work really, really hard all of your life and then you get to you know, your mid-30s and then you get promotion then you become a consultant and that's basically it. There's no nowhere else to go. Now, you've worked incredibly hard throughout the leagues. You've won the European Cup. You've won the uh, Premiership. Um, I wonder, where else is there for you to go and what motivates you next? I, well, I, I think it's, it's interesting, actually, because I think what's probably giving me the biggest motivation at the moment is dealing with what's happening now. And when I say that, I don't mean, you know, there's nothing I can, there's nothing I can necessarily do like, me- medically or whatever to talk about it, but but where the rugby club finds itself now, you know, we've got a hotel being built at the bottom end of our of our facility here. We've got plans to increase the capacity, and yet actually we're in a bit of a financial hole as as are most Premiership sides. Mm. And so seeing ourselves through this period and seeing ourselves through it successfully is actually a, 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 is something I'm very very emotionally attached to. You know, I've spent an awful lot of my you know, beyond my adult life. You know, I was ball boy at the county ground and. You know, also you know, scoreboard boy and all sorts of stuff. You know, it's gone way beyond being something that's been taken up my adult life. You know, it's been a, a focal point of my life and my time with my family and my wife and our kids and everything. Um, and to think that, you know, I would I would be part of this when we ever came became it became a struggle for us to be what we are, which is a members rugby club. Ultimately, you know, providing a place for, you know, say young men, young girls, women, men to come and play sport. If we ever lost that, 
that would be awful. You know what I mean? I think yeah, yeah. that that I got, I've got a huge motivation right here and now to make sure that whatever happens in the next six months, next 12 months, next two years, whatever it is, that we might be able to talk in two years time. And what we're still talking about is a, is a successful vibrant rugby club. That's, that, that's my bigger driver than anything else right here and now. Yeah, that's a really interesting point because, of course, we're not in normal times. Maybe the normal motivations of more trophies have to take a you know, have to take a, a bit of a bit of a back seat. Well, the, the more, more trophies thing will come on the back of a successful rugby team, successful yeah. rugby club. I'm sorry, successful rugby club, and that's my main motivation. Minute is trying to help this rugby club remain viable and remain successful. Mm-hmm. If we do that in the current climate, that's success in itself. Um, and that's what will lead to us having the the, 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 the foundation elements we need to be a successful team in the future. Yeah. Now, you mentioned how long you've been at, been in Exeter Chiefs, and obviously I've done my reading before, and you know you don't need to do much reading to realise that you've been, been been around there for for quite for quite some time. Do you think your approach would work in the world of international rugby? And also, do you think that just international rugby in general? There is too much emphasis on getting results too quickly to develop a team. Uh, I, I I don't mind saying I don't know to most of those. I think I think I don't think international level you can have a lot of development time because you, it, it, I suppose it depends on which country you're at. Yeah, if you're at if you're at a if you're at a country that's got um, a lot of you know a lot of players, a lot of history, rugby history, um, a lot of finance behind it because of those things etc i think it's very hard to say you need a development process because actually your development process has to happen a, a fair bit a fair bit before you're there you need a little bit of time but on the whole you know the players the players should be developed to a certain level you would like to think at those developed countries yeah um and actually your processes that you've just got to be able to put them in place and probably the reality of being a good international co- coach is is that you have the capability to get your processes in place very, very quickly, um, and that and that those processes are successful. That's probably what being an international coach is about. That's slightly different at club level, because at club at club level, but depending on what club you're at, you may get a little bit more time. Because if you're at a certain level of club that's wanting just to see any kind of improvement over an extended period, that's a slightly different different challenge. So I'm not going to say that every process I put in place here will work here executive would work internationally because they're not every one of them would would some of them without doubt some of them would and that would be the that would be the difference is which ones or ones that you could put into place very quickly and which ones would be ones that you wouldn't even try and get in place because you'd never have the time to do them and i think it's getting that balance right is is ultimately what the challenge would be yeah because i always think it's an interesting it's an interesting thought to look at the best club coaches and then think how would they translate into international particularly if the club coach is more involved with the holistic running of the of the club so I, I assume that you're involved in looking at the academy lads and you're involved in in all that and i guess a lot of that just would not be would, would just not be relevant or if it is you're gonna have to have a lot a lot of patience i think i think the reality is it become it becomes a lot a lot less re- re- relevant as an international coach because the reality is for me to be looking at an academy-based player of the premiership club and seeing how they may develop through to an international as you said yourself, means you actually have, for that to come to fruition, you actually need to stay in the job for a number of years, don't you? Yeah. So I think, I think, I think ultimately, if you were going to be a really successful long-term international coach, you would need those things to be in place. 
but they have to be in place while you're winning or while you're being successful at the at the front end. Yeah, that's so I think it. it. Probably has to it probably has to work in reverse in that you have to get some immediate success, which allows your long term planning to then to then come through. And I think that's probably the that's probably a little bit the challenge is that you have to get the immediate level of success that allows you to stay in the position long term enough to set those processes in place. That's uh, yeah, that's a very it's a very succinct way of putting it, isn't it? Which is win now in order to develop later. Which yeah. doesn't seem to make much sense, actually. I think it's just the way it has to be, isn't it? If you're going to you're going to coach one of the frontline nations, you're not going to get a, you're not going to get two seasons of losing to, uh, to, well, to see where the next player comes from. Well, you'd be more than, more than generous with your time, so I'll, I'm just going to ask you this one last thing, and uh, then then we'll wrap it up so you can go and uh, uh, go and go, go and get back to your day job. But um, I, I I quite like the idea of. Um, of people that own companies taking a back seat, uh, not because they, they're sick of their company or they, you know, they're no longer interested in running the whole thing, but more because they want to specialise in 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 one area. So, if you were if you were to look at taking a backward step, say, or in the future you just wanted to focus on one area of rugby, do you, do you have an area which you would be most most comfortable with? Is there, is there an area of the game that you most most enjoy coaching? Um, I think probably now, if someone said to me, oh, well, you know, if someone said, like, you, no, I'm going to say this, because I would like, I would hate someone to say, Rob, we want you to take a back seat. Say we came to a scenario where I wanted to take a back seat, maybe spend less time in here, whatever. The area that I would still like to be involved in right, would be probably recruitment and the salary, management of the salary cap. Really? I think, because I actually think that's the basis that gives you, as I say, that's one of your foundation elements. Yeah. So the, if anybody turns around and says your foundation elements aren't the people you've got in the building, then you haven't got a foundation element, have you? No. So that's no. the reality. The reality is that that would be the thing that would probably I would like to stay involved in would be make sure we've got the right people in the building more than anything else. Yeah, that's a far more profound answer than I'd have given. I'd have said lineups, but you know, yeah, okay. Fine. <laughs> Excellent. I think it's such a huge part of the game. You know, it's such a huge part of the professional game that you you get that wrong, and it doesn't really matter how well you coach lineouts because yeah. you won't have the right people there. Yeah. Well, Rob, I've got I, I gen, genuinely uh, in front of me here. I've got about twenty questions which I wanted to ask you, and I've got to, but maybe about three of them. But it's more than good enough for me, uh, and I, I'm really grateful for your time. Last question before we go: How do you see England going? Uh, this autumn, uh, you don't need to give me an in-depth analysis. It, just a little bit I of a. Think uh... England, I think England will go very well. You know, the, there's a reality. You know, I mean, I could sit here with a big smile on my face and go, "Well, you know, they can they can select players from guys like you know the European champions. Of course, they can. Premiership champions, if they want to, you know, then and they can select players from from a team that have won numerous European champions in re- championships in recent years. Um, you know, the, the game itself is in good health in England. There's been a lot of premiership rugby played recently, a lot of high-level competitive sport being played, rugby being played among England's top players. So they're match fit, they're ready to go. Yeah. Um, and he's got he's got a large group of currently fit, quality players to pick from. I think probably his biggest his biggest thing, and, and, and Eddie seems actually pretty good at it, is to maintain some consistency because there are an awful lot of good players out there who could you know justify being involved in an international squad. So the numbers are there, and it's just bringing them now to to stay fit, stay sharp, stay focused, and 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 just develop develop going forward over the next number of weeks. Fantastic. Well, Rob, thank you so much. It's much appreciated. We'll get you on again soon. I'll get right, to the other eighteen questions. No problem at all. All right, I'll speak to you soon. Cheers, Rob. Thanks.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 